and it and it's based on training in God's word, not anybody's personal opinion. Right. So that was what we're. That's what we're actually in the 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 premise of this course is that every single person who names the name of Christ ought to be involved in these kind of relationships, both in being on the receiving end of these relationships and also, as appropriate, on the giving end of these relationships. Even, even, think about it, what did the man born blind, how was he able to minister? What did he say? was the only thing he could say at one point. You remember what the Pharisees calling him? Once I was blind, but now I see, right? He didn't have any knowledge. You know, he hadn't even met Jesus face to face yet, and yet he's still actually able to minister the truth, even though he's hours old in his relationship with Jesus. And so even very, very young believers ought to be engaged in the work of helping others. All right, but why would you want to disciple someone? What is our motivation as we seek to enter into relationships with one another for the purposes of discipleship? Is it because we, is it like, do we want to have it where it's just because we have to, because it's some kind of obligation? Or is it because we want to, because we've found a particular set of motivations that make you want to do it? Well, obviously, you can do anything for a little while out of a sense of obligation and duty, and we're actually going to talk about some of that in, in the sermon on Sunday. Duty's not a bad word. Duty's not a bad word. However, if we understand heart motivations that can actually keep us going strongly, then that's going to be helpful in keeping us in the game with, in the long run. So last week we said every Christian is called to a ministry of discipleship, whether it's being discipled by a more mature believer or you discipling someone younger in the faith, ideally both. My dad used to say, you want to have someone ahead of you that you're looking to, you want to have someone next to you who you're locked arms with, and you want to have someone behind you who's following you. That's an ideal. Um, but before we begin this ministry of discipleship, we have to understand the biblical underpinnings for a Christian's motivation. We're going to consider three reasons why you should want to be involved in the work of discipleship. So, reason number one, as my computer does its thing. Go away. All right. Why disciple? One significantly important biblical motivation is for your own joy. For your own joy, you ought to be involved in discipling other people. And that might strike some folks as odd to see that a primary motivation that the Bible gives for our discipling of other people is the joy that we receive from the process. It sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? And some people are like, yeah, I, shouldn't, I should be self-disinterested in, in that. And that, that would be to be holier than the scriptures, and that's not a place you want to be. No, the scriptures again and again give, uh, give joy, present our joy as a legitimate motivator for Christians involved in the work of discipleship. So I want you to take a look at those verses that are on the front page of your handout. I forgot to get one for myself, so I'm going to pick it out. And I want just different folks, you don't need to wait for me to call on you, I want you I want different popcorn people to read those verses that are on the front page. We're gonna, I'll call on Wes to start. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, someone else. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how should stand firm in the Lord. So I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. I have great confidence in you, and take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you. You have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we all, which we will glory, in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And then the Apostle John says, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth." So I want you to be able to see that in all of these different verses, from mostly from Paul, but also from John. They wrote about their own joy. God intends to produce joy in you when you are used by him to help others prosper and grow. He wants your joy. He doesn't want you to be involved in the work of discipleship, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He he knows that's going to be hard, He knows there's going to be suffering involved in it. And the work of helping others toward maturity in Christ can be very painful. It can be very painful because sometimes things go wrong. And yet, God fundamentally desires for it to be an experience that brings you joy. And that your joy should be able to increase as you engage more fully in this work. These guys are taking special encouragement from the knowledge that they were personally used by God to help build up the Christians to whom they wrote. This is a biblical motivation that we shouldn't be ashamed to cultivate. We naturally find great pleasure in seeing other believers grow and prosper. Paul would often refer to his hearers as his children in the Lord. And you, you, you know, there's an old phrase used by some that says, well, God has no grandchildren. Of course that's true. Of course, every believer is a child directly of God. But Paul isn't afraid to use child language with respect to those that he's brought up in the faith. And he sees them as his dear, beloved children. He seems to take appropriate pleasure in seeing them prosper through the fruit of his ministry and the ongoing work of others. He is delighted when his children walk in the truth. So, here's a question. Is that kind of joy, is it actually selfish? Does joy in personally hoping and helping to mature disciples, let's say, could it, 
lead us to see people as projects such that people are just a means to the end of our own happiness or, or that we're dependent on people for our happiness. Discuss that for a second. What could, what could go wrong with the motivation to pursue joy as we seek to build into one another? You ever thought about that before? a different kind of joy than I get when I open my Christmas presents and, yeah, there's that thing I really, really wanted. <laughs> uh, that's not joy. That's, um, but it confirms, I think, to our hearts that, yeah, yeah, this is good. This is, this is what God has for me and for this person, mm-hmm. whoever they are. Yeah, that's really delightful. That's really delightful track of your motivation and it starts turning into you know I want to disciple these people because it's benefiting me instead of glorifying the Lord that's where you run into a problem it starts becoming about you instead of the Lord yes that's possible right it's possible to turn it to be about you where you have so many scouts on your belt or whatever in order to, or you, you feel more fulfilled personally because you have X number of people that are that are that you're working with or helping. That's 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 where it starts getting icky. That's where it starts getting icky. Martha, do you? Have... What I was going to say is kind of goes along um, with Carol was saying is that it seems always that joy is a byproduct, so it's not something you should pursue. It's obedience and it's building someone up. That's what you should. Oh, I love that. Did you hear what she said? Joy is the byproduct. It's not the thing we pursue. If you end up, if, if, if you end up with the, the end goal that you're going to pursue your own happiness, ultimately it won't actually leave you happy. Whereas if you actually pursue the glory of God, joy is the byproduct. And in this case, glorifying God by investing in other people for the gospel's sake gives the amazing byproduct of joy. But if you're in it for your own happy, if you're in it for your own happiness, for your own joy, then it can be then it can get complicated. Because then what happens if you what happens if the person you're working with walks away? What person what happens if the person you're working with decides to reject Christ? You know, what happens if they just, what happens if they surpass you? <laughs> All these things can, if, if your motivation's wrong, then that can eat away at your joy. But just because we can do something badly doesn't mean we ought not to seek to do it well, right? Of course, anything can be done badly. But just because, but if it's something noble to do, then it doesn't matter that it could be possible for you to do it wrong. We ought to be seeking to do it right. So this joy, when rightly done, is not selfish joy because it's not dependent on people. It's dependent on the Lord and his working in our lives and in them. So if, if the only thing that we took away from the scriptures is that the pleasure that we derive from 
uh, from seeing others built up in Christ. It could lead to a wrong-headed dependence. But that isn't the picture that we get from them. They were delighting to see themselves as the means that God used in Christian discipleship because it worked good things in them, and it worked good things in the person that they were helping, and it brought glory to the God that they loved supremely. Right? So uh, it's not bad to, be, to, to feel happy that someone came to church because you invited them, or that, someone's an, that you're able to gauge, engage someone in an evangelistic Bible study, or that someone came to faith under, because you were instrumental in them coming to faith. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if every believer at RGC started asking the Lord on a regular basis, Lord, use me, actually use me, somehow in the process so that someone else might be saved this year. Open-handed. But, Lord, not just use, not just bring believers, bring people to Christ in our midst, which I think we should be praying. Lord, would you use me as some part of that process? Not that I, am in, I actually save anybody, but would you, would, would you use me? What, how would that transform our mindset how would that transform our activities if we desired to be used by God in the conversion of sinners and the building up of people, to be used ourselves? And it doesn't mean you have to have the seminary degree. It doesn't mean you have to have been in faith 10 years. It just means you have to be walking with Christ and seeking to help others walk along with him. Okay, any questions on that, that first motivation? I would actually say that far from being wrong-headed, if you aren't someone who takes real pleasure in being used by God to encourage and build up other believers, then I would say something's a little amiss. And I would, I would be seeking to understand that. Why am I not excited at the thought of being used by other people to build up Christ's church? All right. So that is a important motivation. It is a biblical motivation, but it's not the ultimate motivation. Number two... We disciple because we want the eternal good of others. So think about it. God could have chosen any number of means for the communication of his gospel. Think about it. When God sends an angel to somebody, right? That, that could have been a way, right? Angels are sinless. They don't have all the messiness that's part of you know, our makeup. What do angels usually get sent to tell people to do? Just think about it. What? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They often say, they often start that because usually people are scared out of their wits. What kind of things do, do angels tell people? Oh gosh, I'm making you think. The will of God. Okay, the will of God. Yeah, so what's, maybe what's about to come to pass in the will of God. Think about the, think about the angel that was sent to Cornelius. Remember that in Acts? What does that angel say to Cornelius to do? Does he tell him to repent and believe in Jesus Christ? He says, go find Peter. Go find Peter. Peter's going to tell you about the eternal life that's in Jesus. Angels are not sent to people, even in the scriptures, to actually communicate the gospel. That's a privilege that for some reason, 
God has reserved for his people. For his people. We are his chosen instruments to communicate the gospel. When God might have done any other number of ways uh, to communicate the gospel. So, we see that in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How, well, how then will they call in him in whom they have not believed? Answer, they can't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Answer, they can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They can't. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? They can't. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul's working backwards. He's saying, if God doesn't send preachers, then preachers won't preach, then hearers won't hear, and they can't be saved. So it's absolutely necessary that God send people to communicate the gospel. Other than the preaching of the gospel, people will not hear and believe and be saved. Do you believe that you speaking the gospel to other people is necessary for them to be saved? It's necessary that people speak the gospel to other people if they're going to be saved. It does not happen by osmosis. It does not happen... You know, there are stories coming out in the Islamic world right now. And it seems like the Lord is doing more in the Islamic world in the last 25 years than... Do you know the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran? And not, not church, like individual church. The fastest growing body of believers is in Iran. The second was Afghanistan. I'm not sure how the, the last events of the last years changed that. But do you know, there are a number of different stories coming out where people from remote areas in villages that are captivated by Islam do have, do have dreams. And do you know what those dreams what the person that's talking to them in those dreams does. Again, just like Peter, it says, go so-and-so, go somewhere, and find so-and-so, and he's going to tell you about Jesus. Again, that seems to be the, the amazingly wonderful privilege that you and I have, that even angels don't have, to communicate the gospel. All right, uh, Daniel 12.3, just a couple more of these, of these that talk about how we're involved for the good, the eternal good of others. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. James 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, happens sometimes, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Boy, might God use you in the life of someone to save their soul from death by turning them back from their wanderings. Galatians 6.1, similar idea. If anyone, brothers, is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Right? You're a possible agent of someone's restoration. <clears throat> and then one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 12. I seek not what is yours, but you. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, who are kind of bratty. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Boy, boy, let us say that too. I will gladly spend and be spent for the souls of others. Question, what two things last forever? You might have heard me say this before, but... What two things? 
the word of God and the souls of men. I don't remember whose original quote that was. Two things in the scriptures give witness that they last forever. The word of God and the souls of men. If you want to give your life for something eternally significant, why will you not invest yourself in the word of God and in the souls of men and women that they might be eternally blessed? All right, so we want to do others eternal good. Is that the ultimate motivation? Is that the ultimate motivation? The eternal good of others? No. It is not the ultimate. It is a very good and primary motivation, but it is not the ultimate motivation. How do we know this? Well, what if you are called to a ministry like Jeremiah? Who knows anything about Jeremiah's ministry? Who would want Jeremiah's ministry? What does God say to Jeremiah right up front? They're not going to listen. Actually, he might say that to Ezekiel, but to Jeremiah it's always the case. When you read the end of Jeremiah's story, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. He preaches until the Babylonian captivity. He's left among the exiles, and he's ministering to the exiles. They're not he's, he's, the, the ones who are left, who haven't gone into exile, the poorest of the poorest of the poor. He's left among them. He says, don't go down to Egypt, guys. What do they do? They go down to Egypt. Then he says, they say, Come, tell us what the Lord would say. Tell us what the Lord would say. We want to hear from the Lord. Whatever the Lord says, we're going to do. He says, this is what the Lord says to do. They're like, we will certainly not do that. Whatever you were going to say, we're not going to do that. After they've just sworn up and down that they'll do exactly what the Lord says through the prophet. Right? Who wants a ministry like that? Does that mean that, that Jeremiah, who largely had a ministry among those who he could not do eternal good for because because that was not God's will. Adoniram Judson, he he obviously had, he was the missionary to Burma, he obviously had a a wonderful ministry, but in six years, the first six years, no one came, uh, the first six years he was in Burma, no one came to faith. Does that mean that he wasn't doing something right? Does that mean that he, you know, that he should give up because his motivation is doing eternal good to people. Mm -mm. No. Ultimately, our motivation is not our joy. Ultimately, our motivation is not the eternal good of others. Ultimately, the reason is God's glory. So I want you to turn to John chapter 15. The verses are there in your handout, but you might just want to turn there too. We learn from the scriptures that the result of discipling is greater fruit from our lives, which leads to God's glory. So we're going to look at this in detail in John verses 15, 1 through 17. Let's start with verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. By the way, prune and clean are the same word in Greek. That's why, so there's a play on words. Every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans so that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, so questions. What is it that Christ describes in the life of a believer that will bring glory to the Father? What brings glory to the Father? Say it again. That we bear fruit. Right? Do you see that? What verse says that explicitly? Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, we're going to discuss what that fruit is in a moment. What does that fruitfulness demonstrate to the watching world? According to Jesus. Okay, see that? The end of verse 8. And so... Prove to be my disciples. So, if we are bearing fruit, that proves to the world that we are true disciples of Christ to the glory of God the Father. So let's look now at what the fruit is that Jesus is speaking about. What do you think? What are some ideas you might have on what the fruit might be that he's desiring us to bear that we might prove to be God, uh, his disciples and glorify God? Okay, it could be the fruit of the Spirit, which, if you're an Iwana kid, you know is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yep. Right, Levi? There is. Yeah. Okay, so if, if by our love for one another, which is a little later in the chapter, we prove to be his disciples, by this all men will know that my disciples, if you have love for one another, and if this, saying the bearing of fruit, shows that we're his disciples, then maybe love is part of the fruit. Yeah, good. What else might it mean? Yeah, I think that's I think it's fantastic. Think about fruit. What is it? Fruit is an agent of reproduction, right? Fruit is designed, is used by the vine to multiply. And so I think it's very legitimate to see in this the 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 vision that fruit would involve more and more people coming in to abide in the vine. Yeah, so we've got the fruit of the Spirit, we've got love, the fruit, specifically the fruit of love, we've got the idea of multiplication of disciples. I think all those are pretty helpful, and I think we can actually see them right in verses 9 through 17. 
Because even though it doesn't say explicitly what the fruit is, I think we're going to get some hints. So look at verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, the commandment that, by which uh, you'll remain in my love. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. All right, so clearly, clearly there's an emphasis on the need to abide in Christ, remain in Christ, be grafted into Christ, and abide in the love that he's shown for us. But there's also the plain command for us in the passage. We are told that we should love one another how? As Christ loved us. Okay? So the command is to love one another as Christ loved us. So it seems pretty obvious that at least part of the fruit is love. A love for God that shows itself in love for each other. Right? So how do we show our love for God, according to all sorts of verses, Romans 12, 1 John 3. How do we show our love for God? Keep his commandments and specifically which command? Love one another, right? So the first great commandment is that we should love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the outworking of that is love for one another, right? So Horizontal love is actually the proof. Because what does John say? You, no, one can love, no, no one can love God whom he hasn't seen and hate his brother that he has seen. Right? So our love for one another vindicates and proves our love for God. So love is, is I think, very clearly one of the main fruits that he's talking about when he says that we would bear much fruit. But then let's think about, so if we're supposed to love one another as Christ loved us, Well, let's talk about in the passage, how does Jesus say he loves us? What does he do that shows he loves us? Because if we're supposed to love the way he does, we should know how he loves. How does he love? He laid down his life for his friends. Excellent. What else did he do? There's some things we can't share in, but that one we can share in. What's something else we can share in? (laughs) He appears to have made disciples, yeah. And I think you can see that especially in verse 15. I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So he takes everything that he has, has received from the Father and he makes it known to them. And I think these two areas show how we can love one another in a way that 
Christ loves. So, let's think about it. When, when, when you think about what Jesus did in doing good for humanity, what was the primary object of Jesus, of Jesus laying down his life for us? What was Jesus accomplishing for those that he laid down his life for? What are some of the reasons? Forgiveness of our sins, to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, yep, to redeem us from the curse. Ah, making us part of his body, yep. What else is he doing in laying down his life for us? Adoption as sons, yep. Yeah, some other ones are, so those are all fantastic. Others would be, from this passage, so that we can bear fruit. Right? That was the, one of the goals, that's why he laid down his life. That our joy would be complete, that our enmity with God would be replaced with a loving relationship. All these things are what he's trying to communicate. Now, can you and I... Can you and I lay down our lives for someone else that that might actually happen? Can we accomplish that kind of redemption as we lay down our lives for one another? Of course not. Of course not. If we did, you know, then, boy, life would be interesting, but uh, it would be sure different. We can't actually redeem anyone through the laying down of our lives. And most of us will not even be called upon to die for other Christians or face actual martyrdom. But the rest of us are also called to pour out our lives as well, if you will, one drop at a time. Right? We lay down our lives for one another, if you will, one drop at a time. Day by day, pouring out our time and our energy to do real eternal good for the people that Jesus has placed around us. So Jesus laid down his life to do eternal good for the ones he loved. We can do that. We can do that. We can every day lay down our lives to do eternal good to the people who are around us. That is something we can do. We can't affect that eternal good, but we can be working for their eternal good. All right, and that is a fruit that should last, that will last forever. And then the other thing, and now we're kind of to the back of the handout now. The other thing that Jesus did in in loving us and laying down his life for us is that he made known to us all that he had learned from his Father. He made known to us all that he would learned from his Father. He opened up the truth, opened up the word to them, and shared with them the knowledge that he had that comes from the Father. Now, in our day and age, in our arrogant and individualistic culture, we tend to lose the biblical understanding that teaching is not autocratic or rude. We tend to think, I can remember when Elisa told me that at UVM in med school, the freshman class, they had decided to do away with lecture. This is after she graduated. They decided to do away with lecture. And one of the reasons for that was that the students were coming in and they were, they were coming up to professors afterwards and either saying things like, you used masculine pronouns 57% of the time and feminine pronouns only 43% of the time. 
right? Finding fault with their professors, either in some, some sense of what they thought was propriety, or they were just saying, well, that's not what my research shows. So their professors would be talking about a clinical diagnosis or something else, and they'd be like, I don't think so, right? So they were coming in with this vast understanding that their own, their own knowledge was superior and that these people couldn't teach them anything. And unfortunately, one of the things the university did was kind of say, okay, well, if that's the case, we're not going to use this format as much because I guess we can't teach. And the reality is that teaching is kind of seen as this, you know, instead of being, we're, we're all just learning together and we're, we're working to collaborate with one another and I'll share with you and you share with me because we kind of think that teaching is, uh, is, is, kind, of, is kind of out of vogue, kind of too authoritarian. And yet that, yet, that isn't the case in Jesus' world, which is the real world. <laughs> you know, teaching is, is absolutely essential to the building up of people. Now, when you're sitting across from somebody, and you have your Bible open with them, and it can be as simple as just saying, you know, hey, what are you reading in the Bible? What's your next passage? And you're, oh, well, my next passage is John 16. Okay, let's read John 16 together, and you're talking about what it means. You are teaching one another, you are working with one another, trying to help one another grow. So teaching isn't a bad, isn't a bad word. It doesn't mean you need to be an expert in the Bible. Every Christian in this room has been given God's truth, whether it's from your own personal study of the word, or from good public teaching that you get at, ch- at a church, or from good spiritual conversations you have with friends, or we have lots of good books that we like to recommend, which we can pass around to one another, you have a responsibility to show love to others by not hoarding the truth that you've received, but instead giving it away. Right? When we give away the truth, we're not the losers, are we? We only, we only gain from giving away the truth, and they gain as well. So you are called, like, like we did with that little experiment that the guys helped me with last night, we're called to be the unimpressive conduit of God's treasure truth passing along what you've been taught by God. So if you set out to deliberately relate to another Christian with the intent to doing them good spiritually, you are loving them by laying down your life and being willing to pass on to them this truth. So here's how I think John 15 works. Look at this. Discipling is one of the outworkings of Christ-likeness. Us engaged in the work of discipleship is an outworking of Christ-like love. Christ-like love is the fruit that abides. And much fruit glorifies God. So how are you and I called to glorify God? To engage intentionally in relationships that build one another up so that we can re- it can result in fruit, the fruit of love that will last, and that brings glory to God. So, what I think is normative... Oh, go away. Hmm. I love iPads. Actually, I, I do, but it is, I don't always know how to use them. So what I would say is to be fruitful in discipling, we need to focus on our motivations. We ought to be motivated by our joy in doing eternal good for others so that God may be glorified. If you are in a situation where you just don't have any get up and go about trying to relate to others intentionally for the sake of the gospel, I just want you to spend some time this week thinking about why. Why do I care nothing that the people around me 
would do good? Or why do I care, but I'm not interested in actually being part of the solution? Because that's not okay. That's not normative. That's not engaged in abiding in Christ so that, that can, what can be produced is fruit that will last. Okay, questions? Either about the process or... We're going to get into some specifics in the later sessions. Yeah, Mom. Yes, you were. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> no, they weren't false teachers at all. doesn't mean that it can't be someone involved in a long-term mentoring relationship, but what we, and one of the reasons that we switch home groups up, and one of the reasons why we make sure that there's not, you know, we don't want to see it that, I mean, like, this is my person, you know, you know, that would, that, that's a misguided understanding of this, you know, uh, you know, within the context of the church, it's the elders who are responsible for the well-being of the sheep, but we're all also responsible for each other's well-being and as we rub up against each other. So in, when you're in a home group with, this, with these people this year and these people the next year, you have different you have responsibilities to them you know, that you didn't have last year and that you have the year before. So we're not, it's, it's, it's the fact that every time I'm talking to people, am I on the, on the lookout that we might be rubbing together with one another in order to do one another's spiritual good? And sometimes, yes, that involves a longer-term kind of in more intentional relationship. But it doesn't, it's not like we're going to set up a disciple, discipling program where Damien is discipling Wes and, you know, and you're discipling Petra and, and all this stuff, right? The, the, you know, and, and that lasts for, that's supposed to last for five years. Yeah, we're not, it's not a program like that. And we were brought up in a context where it kind of was. And we still benefited greatly from it. So, uh, other questions? Um, just a thought that came up, you know, especially in the last portion when we were talking about teaching, teaching specifically, and coming from a profession of teaching, uh, one thing that I know in that experience is that when you go to teach something, you learn so much more about it. Yeah, and so I think just 
another just an added bonus as to why disciples just to grow in our knowledge of the gospel, whether that is in prep, uh, preparatory action in order to teach or reactionary when someone asks questions. And so I just thought that was kind of neat. You know, I just see so many opportunities when we engage with people to disciple where we can just better ourselves in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Good word. All right, let's close her down and let the, the rest of the folk in. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the fact that you have entrusted the gospel to us. We want to thank you that you have given us the awesome responsibility of communicating it to others. And we thank you that we can do that within this own this very room. Uh, we think about those who are even now uh, finishing up teaching the little ones. Uh, we want to be a church that sees both the little ones and the big ones as uh, we want to be seeing how we can build people up so that they might, so that the Ephesians 2 vision uh, would happen, that we would all achieve the maturity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Lord, may that be us. In Jesus' name, amen.